This is Famous and Gravy, a podcast about quality of life as we see it, one dead celebrity at a time. Now for the opening quiz to reveal today's dead celebrity. This person died in 2021, age 98. He was a star athlete who lettered in football, basketball, and track, and he was voted best looking in his class. Good Lord, <laughs> 98. Good run. Hank Aaron. Not Hank Aaron. He starred in Super Bowl commercials for Visa in 1997 and for Pepsi in 2001, and later made a cameo in a Pepsi ad featuring Britney Spears. Jim Brown? Not Jim Brown. After his death, President Biden said, quote, he was a friend who I could look to for trusted guidance or a humorous line at just the right moment to settle frayed nerves. Jimmy Carter? Not Jimmy Carter. He is, as of this recording, still with us. I thought so. He came home from the war in Europe in a body cast, mostly paralyzed. He spent 39 months convalescing, much of it in surgery. Wait a minute, so we're talking about a political figure? During the 1996 election, he often lapsed into legislative lingo and referred to himself in the third person. He was faulted as having no overarching vision for his campaign or for the country. Bob Dole is in my head. Oh, Bob Dole? Today's dead celebrity is Bob Dole. I've had a lot of health care in my lifetime. I've spent a lot of time in hospitals. Uh, I'm the prostate pinup boy in uh, Washington, D.C. <laughs> I've, you know, I've... I've <laughs> you don't have to say it that way. Well, I understand that people have problems in America, and I think I'm just, hope I'm just as sensitive as President Mrs. Clinton, but we have a different focus on how we get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you actually, do you think that she could, should be on the cabinet? Uh, yes, I think she should be in the cabinet. In fact, I told the president I'd introduce a bill to change the law that would allow her to be in the cabinet. But he had to call me back. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. I'm Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Bob Dole died 2021, age 98. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Bob Dole, the plain-spoken son of the prairie who overcame Dust Bowl deprivation in Kansas and grievous battle wounds in Italy to become the Senate Majority Leader and the last of the World War II generation to win his party's nomination for president, died on Sunday. He was 98. That's the loquaciousness we've missed the last few weeks. <laughs> There it is. The Dickensian obituary is back. (laughs) Oh, my God. Did they go over the top with it? The plain-spoken son of the prairie. I love that. Oh, that's my new cuss word. Is that like... (laughs) Son of the prairie. Next time I stub my toe, ah, son of a prairie. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, like, poetic, right? It's so romantic. Son of the prairie overcame dust bowl deprivation in Kansas and grievous battle wounds in Italy. There's so much going on in here. I'm wondering if you had this experience of getting... Did you think of the movie Forrest Gump as you were preparing for this? In the life of Bob Dole? Yeah. I didn't, but I totally see it It's now. right there, right? I mean, there's so much like American corn-fed journeyman sort of elements to his stories. It's not yeah. quite Alabama, right? But it's adjacent. It's Kansas. I mean, this is 1930s Kansas. 20th century, you know, American romanticism, right? Dust Bowl, World War II, party's nomination for president. I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh, well, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so I got got so excited by Dust Bowl deprivation. Tell me again what was after that. Okay, so Plain Spoken Son of the Prairie overcame Dust Bowl deprivation in Kansas. Grievous battle wounds. Grievous battle wounds. Grievous, yeah. Grievous. Grievous, thank you. I'm I'm adding an I where there is no I. Grievous battle wounds in Italy. To become the Senate Majority Leader and last of the World War II generation to win his party's nomination for president— It's interesting to kind of compare this one against other first lines that we've done on the show because oftentimes we're debating about omission. That's not the case here. There's like almost an excess of inclusion of life facts in here. I honestly don't know that they need this 
overcame Dust Bowl deprivation. He was a kid. He didn't do, I mean, you know, his family was like in the Dust Bowl and he was raised in that era, but he didn't overcome shit, right? They're making him a little too much of a literary hero. Yeah, I think so. The grievous battle wounds in Italy, absolutely. And we are going to talk more about that. Senate Majority Leader, totally important. And I actually think this other idea that's in here, last of the World War II generation to win his party's nomination. I mean, it's almost like they're trying to do a little too much. Compared with other dead celebrities that we've done on the show, this one is really going for it. They're really trying to make a hero out of Bob Dole. So, well, and they're also trying to tell an entire life story. And of course, it says he died at 98. So is that more appropriate, I guess, for a political figure? Because here's the thing that's on my mind about all this. I didn't know most of this stuff. To the extent that I knew Bob Dole at all, it was— Usually it's a singular accomplishment. The 96 election period. Right. So a lot goes into being a presidential candidate of a major party, right? And so I do think I can understand the impulse to want to tell more of a life story, but this is too much. Nobody voted for Bob Dole, even as a congressman, because he grew up in the Depression. They voted for him for the war record, probably, and that he was a likable guy. Yeah, so I'm not getting a good read on whether you like this or not. Well, it's just so different from what we usually do. We've done a few other political figures, but it's been a while. And I don't remember having to think through it like this. Like, on one hand, I love it because what an ambitious first line of an obituary and, you know, kind of its grandiosity and uh, is, is great. On the other hand, <laughs> somebody was feeling it. I don't know. I kind of think they went a little overboard here. So, yeah, I, I, I think I, I don't know. I'm still thinking. What's your reaction to this? I like it. I mean, I'm, I'm entertained. Yeah. It's, I, I, you know, this, if this is the back of the book cover, then I'm, I might browse through a little more of the book. I just feel like the audience for this is the wrong person. When he dies in 2021, there are a whole generation of people who were not born when he ran for president. Yes. And I feel like the New York Times needs to <laughs> speak to that audience. When, in line one. Yeah, goddamn. So that's what's weird here is there's like so much and a big oversight. Right, because yes, we've man. we've often held the position that the first line needs to do an introduction to the person. Yes. Tell the story, but also say, in case you don't know, here is this person. You don't want to miss this, right. It's filling an education gap for people who are like, oh, I actually did not remember, you know, or I wasn't born in 96 or whatever. I don't care enough about what was presidential politics in the mid-90s. So, Okay, it, you've, you've taken me away from my excited cloud for a moment. <laughs> didn't want to pop your bubble. No, you bubble. did. You yeah, did. I, well, okay. no, I think, I, I think it's an important point. Okay, I'm, I'm ready to assess. All right, you go. So I like the literary loftiness. That always gets me. Yeah. You know, a good lyric. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> always, always softens me. So I'm, I'm giving them a lot for that. I do take your point is they need to highlight the one specific thing to which he will be remembered in decades and just in case you don't recognize the name. Uh, so that's going to land at an eight. That's a better score than I would have thought. Yeah. I'm giving it a six. I think that they really dropped the ball in not saying he was the nominee in 96. And I also think that this is a little bit, I don't know if I want to say biased necessarily, but a little too much leeway for a figure that I don't know if he is more worthy than, say, Nelson Mandela or Margaret Thatcher or Ross Perot for poetic license. I can understand the impulse to do it, but I think it was misguided, so I'm giving it a six. And I loved it. Before we move on, can we just take a brief minute to talk about why we're doing this episode? <laughs> yeah, I would like to know, please. <laughs> okay. I do think that there is a core idea of Famous and Gravy of let's take a look before the history books are written. Yes. This speaks to that. I do think that this is a forgotten figure. Totally. I think it's also a pretty important category of fame to tag on every now and then. It's a hard one for us to do because it's not a political show and we don't want to talk politics, but it is a pathway to fame. And if we're talking about desirability, this is one way people get there if fame itself is desirable. Yeah, and is this debatable. is also a guy that became a pop icon. Yeah. And I think that's what differentiates him from another losing candidate that we may not be talking about so much anymore. That actually is my third point, Norm MacDonald. I mean, this gives us an excuse yeah. to talk about Norm again. And, you know, my initial reaction was like, oh, Jesus, we're going to do Bob fucking Dole. I have to say, I am now genuinely excited to have this conversation. There's a whole bunch of shit I did not know. Yeah, there's a little more of like a David Bowie slash Yogi Berra story buried into here. Yeah. Not to mention Forrest Gump. Yeah. Tom Hanks will come up again, I think. Oh, interesting. I yeah. look forward to that. All right. 
Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we love this person, five reasons why we want to be talking about them in the first place. You are so eager, I think you need to start. Okay. I'm going to use a term that you used in the John Madden episode, but it takes on a different meaning for me here. Body positive. I did not know the story of Bob Dole being wounded in war, and I certainly did not know the story of his recovery. And I think that this is one of those things that launches a political career, but we really have to go back and like imagine the shit he went through in terms of bringing his body back to some level of functionality, which it never fully got back to. This guy was a true athlete, 6'2", 190, loved football, loved basketball, and this is Forrest Gumpy too, loved running. I definitely did not know what a key figure he was behind the Americans for Disabilities Act in 1990. He made that thing happen. And I think that part of it was because, you know, he never regained function of his arm and his shoulder after his wounds. And, you know, always had that clenched fist. I didn't even know that about him. The whole I didn't thing know that either. Yeah. yeah. Watch him sign an autograph or shake hands. It's World War II. The injury. The wound that still causes pain. You always keep pen or rolled up paper or something in, in that hand. Why, why is that? I guess it's sort of a protective thing. It's sort of a signal to people, you know, that hand's occupied. It's just gotten to be a habit now. I assume when I die, there'll be a pen in my hand. If you look in the casket, <laughs> I hope so. If anybody's listening, I want that done. Let me go back to the war wounds. You know, the, the Allied troops are advancing. He's lieutenant. He goes out to rescue somebody who looks like they've been shot, and then he, he gets blasted himself. They did not know if his spinal cord had been severed or bruised, but he was straight up paralyzed. He couldn't move. And he laid on the battlefield for nine hours. And then when they got him out, like there was a nasty surgery, you know, I mean, he cannot move his legs. He cannot move his arms. And he doesn't know, like the doctors don't think he's ever going to be able to move. Let me read this. I passed the time staring at the dimly lit beige ceiling of the old hospital walls, counting the squares in the ceiling pattern, reliving the day on Hill 913 as if in a blurry slow motion, asking myself the toughest question of all, why? Why me? Why did it happen? As one hour slowly turned to the next, I concentrated my thoughts on trying to move my fingers, toes, arms, and legs. A strange paradox began taking place. As the sedatives wore off, the pain flooded in, throbbing intensely throughout my body. But as uncomfortable as it was, I almost welcomed it. The sheer fact that I could feel pain was an improvement. I hadn't been able to feel anything for days. 39 months he was recovering. Cigarette ash would fall into his cast. So would crumbs. And people wouldn't be able to clean it up and it developed this nasty smell. He almost dies twice. There's one moment where he gets a fever of 108 degrees. Before the war, he loved football. He was Forrest fucking Gump, right? He loved running. And he went to Kansas to, like, play sports. He was recruited there. For basketball. I mean, this is, like, one of the most storied basketball schools out there. Totally, right? And... All this happens before he's ever in office, right? And he doesn't have dreams of, like, using this story to sort of win over America or anything like that. I think that the way he makes peace with his body, wills himself to learn how to move again, and a lot of it was willpower. And I think it extends throughout his whole life. So I mentioned the Americans for Disabilities Act. I think this also brings in the Viagra thing. Okay. Yeah. So... Actually, do you want to explain Viagra? Explain what the product is? <laughs> no, Bob Dole's role in advancing knowledge of this drug. Yeah, so he became a spokesperson for Viagra. He was on TV ads. He was doing the very serious Viagra ads. Yeah. There's no joking or laughter in it whatsoever. When I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I was primarily concerned with ridding myself of the cancer. But secondly, I was concerned about possible post-operative side effects like erectile dysfunction, ED often called impotence. You know, it's a little embarrassing to talk about ED, but it's so important to millions of men and their partners that I decided to talk about it publicly. I don't think I had put together the fact that he had a long recovery from war wounds. The Viagra piece, to me, actually kind of, I don't know, puts it all into the same body-positive idea. You know what I mean? Yeah, I follow that. Like, it's kind of awesome. Like, yeah. Good for him, right? When I say body positive, it's also like symbolic and representative. 
There's a way in which he has a relationship with his body that a lot of us don't necessarily have to confront. And I think it's a kind of relationship that we should all aspire to have with our body. Thing number one, body positive. Okay. We'll take it. We got number two. Number two. Do you read Us Weekly? My wife loves it, and Ah. so I wind up looking over her shoulder more than I care to. Okay, so are you familiar with the section of They're Just Like Us? Yes. I am too. (laughs) So my number two is He's Just Like Us. Bob Dole, when he retired from the Senate after his failed 96 presidential career, was really only minorly involved in politics after that. And one of his many pet projects and endeavors was he wrote a few books that were about presidential wit. And he took it upon himself to rank the top 10 funniest presidents, in his opinion, which is exactly something you and I would do. (laughs) It's such a barroom conversation that is based on no science whatsoever, but it's just like, I'm taking this anecdote and this anecdote, and I'm framing this into a countdown list. Funniest presidents of all time. Yeah, and so he did. And I just think it's great. The fact that he actually thought that way and published it in a book I appreciate it. I love that. It's like uh, shuffling around baseball cards and deciding who your favorite is based on certain traits. And he took the baseball cards of ex-presidents and shuffled them into the wittiest order. Correct. And he did this when he was 84 years old. I need to know the list. Well, there's no spoilers. I'll give you the top four. Okay. Okay, You got to go buy the book at Half Price Books for the next next six. Uh, Number four, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Oh, Teddy Roosevelt. Of course. Number three, his cousin, Franklin Roosevelt. Number two, Ronald Reagan. Of course. Uh, And then number one, Abraham Lincoln. And he said, Lincoln had a natural gift for sarcasm, which he learned to control. Nevertheless, it occasionally spilled out. Of one long-winded orator, he observed, he can compress the most words into the smallest ideas of any man I ever met. So apparently Lincoln was a concise, sharp-witted one-liner. This is an unbelievable segue. Can I go to my number three? Yes. My number three was his sense of humor and his sharp wit. Al Gore. I think people are tired of Al now, aren't they? They wanted, they kind of wanted Al to either go nuts or something, but he <laughs> he didn't. Nothing really ever well, happened with Al, did the he? Thing about, I'm afraid if Al gave a fireside chat, the fire would go out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's some funny shit he said throughout the years. So I wrote down a couple of them. His 1980 primary campaign crashed and burned, right? He wanted to be the Republican nominee. Uh, Ronald Reagan won it. He won just 607 votes in New Hampshire. And the next day he said, he, quote, slept like a baby. Every two hours, I woke up and cried. Uh, Also in 1980, uh, there was an anti-democratic wave in the Senate. And he said, if we, the Republicans, had known we were going to win control of the Senate, we would have run better candidates, which I think is a great dig. I think it's not that I necessarily love his sense of humor. I think it's good. I think it's okay. But I think it's also like the way he uses humor to connect with people and to like normalize himself. I mean, I think it really does get back to your number two thing. He's just like us. Yes. What I had, and this is, I'm just going to corollary your number three, is I had said uh, that he thinks he's funny. Um, <laughs> but but I mean that like in a nice way, because I don't like, find him, aside from a couple of the lines you just read, like this whole idea of Bob Dole being the wittiest senator, or, I, d- I don't buy that at all. I just think he thinks he's funny. And he tells a lot of jokes, but there's virtue in that. Yeah. And that is what I like. Again, him. it's not that I love his sense of humor, but I love it greater on a curve here. Okay. So you're number four. Mine is married a Democrat. Yeah. We're going to get into this. We have a category about love and marriage, but Elizabeth Dole campaigned for Kennedy. Yeah. And worked in the Johnson administration. Correct. And then marries Bob Dole, who's been in the Senate for a while right now. They marry in 1972. We're going to get into this in our marriage category. You know, for somebody that is the symbol of stalwart republicanism, for him to ask out this left-leaning liberal Elizabeth— is a pretty bold move. So what's to like about it? Um, Well, one, it's 1972, right? But it's two, he's also a stalwart of Republican politics. But he's also separating, I think, belief and love. And it's harder to do that maybe nowadays, but I think it was really, really hard back then to place, you know, hard above scroll. And I think that's what I like about him. I like your number four. Because I think it speaks to willingness to potentially have disagreements. Yep, I think so too. And I'm giving, I'm just going to give Bob Dole um, some diversity points for it. Yeah, I like it. Number five, I got a small one, but I kind of love it. Okay. He has a porch named after him. 
They apparently used to refer to it as Dole's Beach. Uh, he loved to take meetings outside, and he said it was the second best view in Washington, D.C. Oh, of the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah, I saw this. Yeah, and, like, you know, he'd go out there to, like, get his tan right, you know? And so, I just, just from a legacy perspective, I want something named after me that is a hangout space. You've been at parks before where, like, this bench was dedicated to somebody's memory or something. Yes. I think I want that, like, way more than I want, like, a statue. I think that's great, and it's small, but it's it was meaningful to me. Okay, I want to play a little game with you. All right. So I'm going to give you a choice of fountain or tree. I'm going to go fountain. It needs to be something built. No tree lasts forever. Fountains potentially do. Plus, I like water a lot. Okay, I like water a lot. Nice. Yeah. Stadium or library? Oh, library. No question. Okay. I don't need a bunch of people cheering. I need people reflecting. Uh, street or school? I like street. I yeah. mean, I've got nothing against early childhood education. Sure. I like street as part of a construct of a larger city and something that is used by not just children and parents, but it's actually part of an <laughs> ecosystem of a city. Let's recap. So, uh, number one, I said body positive. Number two? He's just like us. Just like <laughs> us. I love that. Number three, sense of humor graded on a curve. Um, <laughs> Very well put. <laughs> number four? Married across the aisle. Married across the aisle. And number five? A porch. Named after him, a balcony. Yep. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people can take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind, and they can have a front row seat right behind his eyes to his experiences. What do you got? Okay. So Michael talked about the, I say war wound, but it was much, much worse than that. The near death experience that he experienced in World War II. He was so terribly wounded that they had like just pumped him up with morphine, waiting for the medics to come. And they used his own blood to draw the letter M on his forehead to indicate he's already been morphined. And if you put more in, it'll be a fatal dose. Yeah. Like he was that bad. Yeah. When he makes it back home to Russell, Kansas, there's still more work to be done. The extent of his VA benefits have run out and he needs more help that he wants the help of a specific private surgeon, I believe it was maybe in Illinois. Yes, you're more or less, this is right. So let's go back to Russell, Kansas. Not a big town, I think, 2,000 people. He's very much a hometown hero, right? We talked about him being this glorified high school athlete. They know he goes away to college for a year, goes and gets severely wounded. And so this town kind of rallies behind him. And in the town's drugstore called Dawson's Drug, they set out a cigar box basically to collect donations to get Bob Dole his next level of treatment. Anytime they went through the drugstore, they would sign in and put sometimes 30 cents, sometimes they would put up to $5, a huge amount back then. And together, collectively, they raised $1,800 in this very early version of GoFundMe. And they give it to Bob Dole as basically a passageway to go get his treatment. So that is the exact moment that I want to be Malkovich'd. Like the moment that somebody hands you over money and said, we passed the hat, the town rallied? All the feeling that goes behind that. Yeah. I, I think it's very, very different from what we see right now in the internet fundraising. I think there is a being seen and being validated and a reason to live that's happening in that moment of saying that, $1,800, you know, we essentially got 90 cents per head of this town chipping in for your survival. To be individually recognized, seen, and somewhat heard that your life matters. Yeah. I'm going back to my Angelou quote here of your life matters. To receive that, to receive that box of $1,800, I think would be an extremely life-affirming moment. After being in near death, you're like you said, hitting death almost twice, in a body cast for near three years, probably looking upwards and around for reasons to go on. And I think this did it. Yeah. And he kept that cigar box like in his Senate office for, I think, his entire duration. But the moment of receiving it, I think, puts you in a moment of belief. Yeah. The belief in the goodness of the world. The faith. Yeah. I think to experience that and see it through your own eyes can change your entire perspective on the world. Yeah. It really stuck out to me. So in 1976, he's asked by President Ford to be his running mate. So Dole is on the ticket. There's a rally where he's talking about that moment and he totally breaks down. If I have done anything, it's because of people I have known up and down Main Street. And I can recall the time when 
When I needed help, uh, the people of Russell helped. And I think... It's really moving. It's hard to hear that without getting emotional. It's a good one, Amit. All right. Maya Malkovich, mm-hmm. I went the 1996 David Letterman appearance three days after losing his last attempt at the Oval Office. And it should be said, like, this guy really tried to be president a few times. Yes. 1976, he's on the VP ticket. 1980, he tries to challenge Reagan. 1988, which I definitely want to talk about later because that's where I think he got super close. And then in 1996, this is like his last shot. I think that if you watch him in that clip with Letterman— Letterman really likes this guy. Uh, You used a phrase, and I I said to myself, geez, this is a very eloquent, very nice, lovely thing for you to have said. Uh, I I think you said, I don't regard President Clinton, he's my opponent, he's not my enemy. And I I thought, geez, at at the end of all of this, and just, you know, the highs and the lows, and being slapped silly every time you turn around, (laughs) to be able to say something like that, I I thought it demonstrated a a great deal of character. It's it's true, though. I think he, I hope he felt the same way. But... uh... But he is fat. He's huge. 300 pounds. He's close to 300 pounds, Bob. Is he that close? Oh, yeah, easy. I I never try to lift him. I just try to beat him. (laughs) There is real true respect. To go on that show, a place where you've been kind of mocked and a place where, you know, people laugh at you after you've lost what has to be a devastating election and be like, yeah, there's such humility in it. I think the Malkovich moment for me is— curtain draws back and you walk out on stage and like, okay, I gotta go to Letterman now. What is going through his mind then? I mean, I I do think that there is a guy here who's more or less at peace with himself who must have committed to doing the show, but who also is sort of like happy to be with Letterman to kind of like, let's see if we can laugh at this a little bit together because that's what I need now. I don't know exactly what's going on behind those eyes, but I want to be behind them right then. Yeah, I think there's some of that Bob Dole acceptance happening. Yeah. So I got to come clean with something. I completely missed the 1996 election for a very good reason. Alcohol and drugs. Not quite. That's the second good reason. No, I was in the wilderness. Oh, that was the wilderness year. That was the wilderness year. I was in the wilderness in Patagonia for three months, and we went into the woods in September and did not emerge until mid-November. So there was a period of time where a president had been elected, and none of us knew because the communications were such at the point that— it, word had not reached us yet. Everything about the 96 election, I've had to go and uh, recreate. I, I didn't experience it at all during the time. Interesting. So that's my Malkovich. I like it. It's a good one. Let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Michael, are you proquarian? <laughs> no, sir. I am antiquarian. What does it mean to be antiquarian? That means relating to or dealing in antiques 
or rare books, which is why I am an antiquarian. Oh, because you like collecting rare books. Absolutely. And where do you find them? You just go to flea markets and scavenge the internet? Absolutely not. I go to half-price books. They have all kinds of both new and used books. It's not like you're only getting the old stuff at half-price books. They also have new, fresh books. You know, right, it right off, right, <laughs> off, right out of the oven, including bestsellers, including bestsellers, right off the press, right off the press. Half Price Books is the nation's largest new and used bookseller with 120 stores in 19 states. Half Price Books is also online at hpb.com. All right, category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? All right, I'm going to list out the facts, and then we can discuss. Two marriages. The first wife, Phyllis. That's such a good name for Bob Dole's first that wife. That is perfect. <laughs> Phyllis Dole? Phyllis, Phyllis Holden Dole. Uh, oh, even better. I know. It's good, right? She was a, uh, an occupational therapist at the Veterans Hospital in Michigan. They were married in 1948, divorced in 1972. Bob was 25 when they were married, uh, 49 when he divorced. This is like the tail end of his recovery. They had one child, Robin, born in 1954. I read an article about Robin. It's hard to get information on her. The family dynamic, I think, in the Dole household is a little distant. Looks like he was pretty not around a whole lot for Robin's upbringing, and it sounds like Phyllis didn't care much for political life. Um, so as Bob is getting more and more successful as a politician, Phyllis is less and less into it. 1972 is when Bob and Elizabeth meet. She's 13 years younger than Bob. She is still with us as of this recording, age 87. Married in 1975. Bob was 52. He died at age 98. So they were married 46 years and no children. Okay. For people who don't know who Elizabeth Dole was, she, you know, had a storied career in politics, Was wound up being senator of North Carolina. Her name was mentioned frequently as a potential candidate for the GOP, for the Republicans, whether it was for vice president or for president. I think there was flirtations with that idea, even when Dole was running. I saw him asked if he didn't get the nomination for president with Bush one, like, what if Elizabeth was asked to be on the ticket then? He's like, eh, I'm for it. I don't know. We haven't talked about it much. Hugely impressive person. She was president of the Red Cross. Masters at Harvard and education. I mean, and one of the few women to come out of Harvard at that time. Yes. Um, this is not like the type of first lady that we associated with the sort of 70s and 80s type. This was a— Right, the, the smiling she, lady who's in the background being like a housewife or whatever. Yeah, she seemed, and still is, I think, pretty damn impressive. Yes, I agree. But I actually want to step back from the category for a second, because you and I were talking before this recording about one of the things that makes political figures very hard to talk about on Famous and Gravy is that there's such scrutiny of their lives that we have an abundance of information about them, but it's also sort of more cordoned off. We only ever get so inside the relationships. Yes. And I think that I don't know, understanding of what we know and what we don't really needs to be called out as we talk about love and marriage. And I think also as politician, as celebrity, uh, in Bob Dole's case, there's also a vehement denial that they're anybody but they present themselves to be. Right. He said out there, like, there is no private Bob Dole. Everything you see is everything there is about Bob Dole. And that cannot I've, be true. That's impossible. Right. It's impossible for anybody. But that was very much the way of politics, I think, maybe up until recently, and to an extent, even it's, it I persists think it, now. I think it's still true. I mean, if you think about Hollywood, if you think about even musicians, like there's a stage persona, right? And that's part of why we are into them as a performance. I think it's true with politics, but they're performing the role of authenticity. That's why yeah. there's so much contradiction in it. And at the same time, I think that's what actually makes them very interesting for this show. Mm. Because what our show is trying to do is we're humanizing them to get the actual lessons and the things that we think we want out of life. And if you really have to squeeze somebody to see beyond what is presented, yeah. the more you're going to glean, because the more that you're going to realize that whatever you saw wasn't exactly the entire picture, and you're going to begin to see that everybody is a human and everybody has a story. And to me, that makes it more relatable, and that makes more of truth in the lessons to be learned. Well, so what do you see here? I mean, I see here a guy that 
got married at 52 years old and that's his lifelong power couple. Yeah. That's interesting as hell to me. Huh. Like I had no idea. I assumed Elizabeth Dole was prior to getting married for this episode that she was with him since like the whole run. The whole run. Yeah. But this is a guy with a failed marriage, some rocky parts of the first marriage if it ended. Yeah. And then everything you came to know him for spousally happened at the age of 52. Spousely? Spousely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable story and it's a pretty remarkable life lesson. We're talking about a life that began after 50, a love life that began after 50, a partnership. This is all second half of life starting stuff. And then he called me and we talked for 40 minutes. We had all these mutual interests and friends and so on. And, um, and then he said goodbye. And then about two weeks later, he called again and we talked for quite a while. And he said, well, maybe we could have dinner sometime. And I said, well, that would be very nice. And he said, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) And it was on the third call that he asked me out to dinner. And what I realized was he's a little shy, and I like that. He's not somebody chasing women around Capitol Hill. You know, I I really like that very much. So any conclusions you want to draw uh, from the love and marriage before we move on? I kind of feel like you said it. I, I believe yeah, it. Yeah, I, I said it. I, I'm saying they're surprising me that there was two and that she was his second wife. It seemed to work out very well. It seemed to me that he almost had no periods without sort of companions. I think that's true. I, I think I don't know that there's such thing as an independent Bob Dole, you know, the who who can be alone. Yeah. Uh, so I think the only conclusion to draw is that there were two, and that was a surprise. And yeah. also when you're a spokesperson for Republican politics and traditional values, two marriages may be the best outcome. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. All right, category five, net worth. I saw $40 million. Yeah, this surprised me. Okay, so I, got, I did a little more research on okay. it because I was surprised as well. So I'm quoting from an article I read here. In her 2007 financial disclosure, Elizabeth estimated that she and Bob were worth a minimum of $14 million and a maximum of forty nine. In 1996, during Bob's presidential campaign, the Doles estimated their net worth to be two point three to 7.7. So that's quite a bit less. That's the same as around four to thirteen in today's dollars. At the time, Bob was earning about uh, one hundred fifty thousand dollars salary as a senator, ten thousand per year in speaking fees, and eighteen hundred or so in military retirement benefits. I think um, the commercials post ninety six paid off hugely. I think the memoir also sold, you know, to a certain audience. While I was initially surprised at forty million. Learning a little bit more, I think that the two of them both gained quite a bit in later years, and I think that plays into it. Yeah, and pretty wise investors, I think her specifically, a lot of real estate investing of that money, perhaps of that Viagra and Pepsi money. I mean, they're fucking, you know, senators. They, They probably know where to put their money. Yes. But this is very surprising to me as how rich he is, Yeah, as sort of a man of the people type of politician. Part of it, I think, is just pure longevity. The guy made it to 98. Yeah. You know, he had 20 years, 25-plus years-ish um, after he didn't win the presidency in 96 yeah, there's to a go lot out of, there and make money. There's a lot of time for returns to compound God as well. damn right. I mean, so I don't know. That's how I understood this number. Yeah, I can, I can be okay with it. But I think he's also, you know, he really used his defeat. A lot to his financial advantage. No question about that. Um, and, and, and good for him for that. No judgment. Okay, category six? Yes. I'm looking forward to this one. Category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. This category was made for Bob Dole. (laughs) (laughs) Agree. All right, The Simpsons. There are at least four episodes where he's mentioned. He never voiced himself which is a little bit unfortunate. One that really stands out to me, which is the Treehouse of Horror episode. Aliens come down, and, and this is in 1996. I remember this one now. Yeah, yes. and they uh, the aliens take over Bob Dole and Bill Clinton's bodies and because they don't know who the leader's going to be when they say, Homer, take me to your leader. Senator Dole, why should people vote for you instead of President Clinton? It makes no difference which one of us you vote for. Either way, your planet is doomed. Doomed! Well, a refreshingly frank response there from Senator Bob Dole. Saturday Night Live, obviously. There's two impersonators, Dan Aykroyd, but much more importantly, Norm MacDonald. Back in WW2, the big one, a, a war hero or somebody would jump in a grenade, it'd 
blow his damn arm nine ways a Saturday. <laughs> Senator, I have the utmost respect for your war record, and as I think we all do, I, I saw quite a bit of action myself over in Vietnam. Yeah, you did a, did a hell of a job over there. A big victory for us. Really kicks an ass. <laughs> and Bob Dole did appear alongside Norm MacDonald after he lost the election. This is after he's doing the rounds and goes to Letterman as well. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, and Dole actually loved the impression, too. Yeah. I was listening to interviews from Dole from like 2019 and 2020, and he's still talking about Norm MacDonald. <laughs> and how weird that they died so close to each other. Yeah. Halls of Fame, there's no Hollywood Walk of Fame, as you can imagine. There is a Presidential Medal of Freedom that was given to him by Bill Clinton. Which um, is kind of weird, like the year after the defeat. Yeah, and he actually shows up and says, I, Robert J. Dole, oh, sorry, wrong speech, which yes. I thought was actually a pretty good joke. And then Arsenio Hall, nothing, which is worth mentioning that Clinton's 1992 appearance where he played the saxophone on Arsenio is a real moment yes. in presidential political history. That's true. It's a kind of funny, all right, so, you know, normally I'm very, very proud of how our criteria for fame, you know, do and do not sort of um, measure this. I think that there's a lot of people who don't know who Bob Dole was. Presidential losers are very, very rarely remembered. I think a lot of people under 30 would not have huge name recognition. You know, yet he is on Simpsons and Saturday Night Live. How remembered is he going to be? I mean, do we want to talk about that? How famous was he? I mean, I, you know, how, how do we how do we go after this here? So, Simpsons Saturday Night Live to us is a mirror of how famous you are at the time, but us, it's also a bit of a predictor of longevity yeah. of fame. Because if you were important enough to be mocked, then we're giving credit to the writers and the creators of the show that they're not just so doing current events. Right. Right. They're doing stuff that they actually think has decent societal import. Yeah. But I think he might be the exception there. I think there was a good 10-year run that there was a lot of Bob Dole relevancy. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, he's a uh, just a losing candidate that grew up on the prairie and helped the prairie a lot. I think there's a huge gap in longevity, in terms of longevity of memory, between the gold and silver medal here. Yeah. If you are a losing candidate to the presidency, I don't think your fame has a very long shelf life. All right. Category seven. Over under, in this category, we look at the life expectancy for the year somebody was born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. The life expectancy for an American man born in 1923 was 56.1 years. He made it to 98. He beat it by 42 years. I looked it up. It's exactly the same number that Wapner had. Oh, really? Yeah, Wapner was also 42 years. I was wondering if this was going to be a famous and gravy record. It's tied for number one. Okay. We are going to graph this at some point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no question. I mean, this guy was supposed to die in his early 20s. Many times. um, Or at the very least, like, permanently disabled. Yeah. None of those things. And to live to 98 years old, holy son of a prairie. And pretty sharp. I don't know if you watched the clips of him in 2016. but even Yeah, even 2019, 2020. Well, yeah, he's, he's lucid. I mean, he's with it. He's lucid. Know? He's articulate. He's definitely weak, right? He's yeah. always in a wheelchair. He has trouble standing. Right. Absolutely fine. I don't think that's, that's, gonna that's not a measure. It has to be expected. Yeah, yeah that's not, that's not an, uh, a strike against grace. Yeah. Desirable? Desirable? I, you said it. I mean, you said lucidity. Yeah. Absolutely. Why not? Okay. If I'm if I'm Bob Dole and I'm and I've that type and I've guy, had this kind of relationship with my body and its functionality for most of my life, and yet I am still lucid and with it. I think that you know if you couple those two things together, because my fear you know of aging is loss of bodily functions. Right? Yeah. You know he he he's been through that. He's learned those lessons long long ago. I mean he he needed help going to the bathroom when he was getting, uh, when he was recovering from his war wounds. So, like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think in that sense, extraordinarily desirable. But are you asking in absolute sense, is it desirable to live to 98? No, I'm asking given the constraints of this dead celebrity. Yeah. Right, yeah. I think no question. Do you want to go there in an absolute sense? Not today. Okay. Let's pause. Jennifer Flowers. Jennifer Flowers is alive. The rules are simple. Dead or alive. She is 72 years old, still with us. Christ, we are so old. John Cougar Mellencamp. Alive. 
very alive, still rocking in the free world at 71 years old. Uh, that would be Neil Young. Charlton Heston. And his cold, dead hands, so I'm assuming he's still alive. <laughs> his, his hands are actually dead now. We lost them in 2008. <laughs> Test your knowledge. Deadoralive.app.com. Hey, Famous and Gravy listeners, I have a podcast I want to tell you about. It's a really funny show, perfect for anyone who hates censorship. It's called Bandcamp, and it's hosted by the hilarious duo of Jennifer and Dan. Bandcamp is a comedy podcast where they read banned books and try to figure out why they were banned in the first place. This season, they're reading Harper Lee's classic To Kill a Mockingbird, one chapter at a time, out loud. If you think banning books is a slippery slope towards a not-so-great future, then Bandcamp is definitely the podcast for you. Whether you're like Jennifer and curious to read the book for the first time, or like Dan and a little too lazy to read it yourself, you'll love Bandcamp. It's a funny show and a great concept. We will link to it in the show notes. All right, category eight. This is where we get to the more introspective questions where we take our best guess at what we think it would have been like to have been this person. First of these categories is man in the mirror. What did they think about their own reflection? Amit, we actually have an answer. I'm going to read from the book, if I may. This one leaps off the page for me. So he's at the hospital. One day, as mom and the nurses were helping me out, I looked up and noticed that somebody had left the bathroom door open. I could see a mirror in front of me, but I didn't recognize the image in the glass. The last time I'd seen my reflection in a mirror, I weighed 194 pounds. But by now, my weight had dropped to about 122. My arms and legs were so thin, I looked as though I'd been in a prisoner of war camp. My strong upper body, once finely chiseled and toned by my lifting the concrete block weights, now looked puny and concaved. My legs had atrophied to the point that they looked like a crane's legs sticking out from under my pajama top. My eyes were sunk so far back in my head, I looked like a ghost. My right arm stuck out in a new triangular-shaped brace, and my left arm dangled awkwardly. When I saw myself in the mirror, I was horrified. Who is that, I thought? That can't be me. It's been more than 60 years since I first saw that image in the bathroom mirror. In the past 60 years, I've glanced at my full body in a mirror less than half a dozen times. I still don't look in the mirror, except to shave. So I guess it just sort of sticks with you. I think there's a lot of acceptance with this man. I don't think it's all about what you see in the mirror, but I think that you're never going to get a clear answer to this question. I'm going to say no. He doesn't like his reflection in the mirror. I agree completely. Uh, How do you pair this against your thing, number one, that you love of body positive? Because it's not how I look, it's what it can do. And those are two different questions. I agree. He didn't like it. And there's reasons for. Yeah. Understandable. But no doubt, he was handsome. Like, even pre and post injury. Yeah. All right, next category, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, how do we think he felt about the sound of his own voice when he heard it on an answering machine or outgoing voicemail? Also, would he have used the default setting or would he have recorded it himself? I think you have a very clear answer here. This is the whole third person. Bob Dole talks about Bob Dole. Absolutely. Bob Dole is not home right now. Please leave a message for Bob Dole, and Bob Dole will call you back. Uh, No question he would have left the message. Did he like the voice? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to think about this one too much. And I think that's why. I think that's why he even has this whole third person thing as part of it is that he likes his own voice. Yeah. And he likes saying his name, and he likes hearing his name. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a weird meld between Man in the Mirror and the voicemail category. Bob Dole is a doer, not a talker. Bob Dole doesn't want you to watch this movie or that movie. And that's what Bob Dole's all about. The humility, yes, he had. He would absolutely record it to his own voice. He liked talking. He liked speaking. He loved using his voice. I think anybody that serves in that type of role in the Senate for so long has a good relationship with his voice and with his ability to talk. Uh, I agree. I agree. Category 10, regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night? I have nothing in the public category. I've got two in the private category. And they're both around presidential politics. 1988, the primary election, he came way closer than I realized to being the president Mm -hmm. in 1988. Usually the primaries go Iowa, then New Hampshire. He took first place in Iowa. He got some bad advice in New Hampshire, it sounds like. I listened to a podcast where they really laid out the case. There was a campaign advisor 
encouraging him to do an ad where he would pledge no new taxes. He pushed back on that. He said, I don't want to make those kind of campaign pledges. So the ad never ran, and Dole wound up losing unexpectedly, despite what the polls had said, to George H.W. Bush in 1988. And he said, I knew in my gut that the primary campaign was over. And he also, I think in that same run and losing New Hampshire, like he kind of went off on Bush. He had kind of a Howard Dean type of moment. Yeah, 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 totally. And Senator Dole, is there anything you'd like to say to the vice president? Yeah, stop lying about my record. The other one I want to talk about a little bit is uh, his support for Donald Trump in 2016. He yeah. was the only presidential candidate of the Republican Party to show up for t- Trump in 2016. You know, without getting into the politics of that, I think why that's partly really interesting is because you would have thought Bob Dole was, was a never-Trumper. He was such a, like, work across the aisle, seemed to be all about having friends in the Democratic Party. It wasn't about an adversarial, acrimonious relationship. Not to mention the fact that there is that moment with Trump where he's chastised for um, for making some fun of somebody's disability. Dole seems like a very unlikely figure. So I was trying to think through, you know, what's he doing there? So there's an interpretation where he genuinely believes Donald Trump is like the man for the job. Trump's also running against Clinton. And, you know, yeah, there's, there's a some history there. there. Yeah, yes. totally. He did say after Trump lost the election in 2020 that I'm sort of Trumped out. So yes. kind of a surprising uh, relationship with Trump. So in 2016, I can kind of get, because what we're talking about is... Regret potential. We're talking about regret, but we're also talking about ability to be sort of self-aware and be fluid. Yeah. And I think for a guy of Bob Dole's age, loyalty to party was still paramount. Yeah. That's how I interpret it, is that he still had to do that. As duty, yeah, as duty essentially. Yeah, but yeah. I think that's convoluted, and I think if we want to talk about desirability, I think it goes, it's contrary to some of the things we talked about, specifically in meeting his wife, and so forth. Yeah. I don't know that he at the time had duty to what's right. He held, it seems to be, the very same temperament of John McCain and all of these contemporaries that said that, you know, something weird is going on here. I think he was actually really truly friends with Biden and other Democrats. The Senate has this reputation. It's because they're, they're elected for longer terms and it's a body where more compromise is happens. But the other weird thing is he voted for him in 2020. Yeah. I mean, that's some weird stuff. Yeah. I don't know what I'm debating here is, is it truly a regret or not? So I think the fact that he voted for him again in 2020 points to the fact that 2016 is probably not a regret. Yeah. I don't know, but it's certainly a legacy. Yeah. Right? One of the last things he's known for is casting his vote for Donald Trump in 2020 amidst all of everything that had happened since 2016, which no matter what brand of Republican you are, you're going to be associated with. And then the, the guy he Trump's running against is an old colleague. Right. Yeah, who is actually like a, just a mirror of him. Right. Really. I mean, he's he's a repetitive loser. Yeah. He's a guy that's run a million times and totally. keeps getting lost. He's known as being very monotone. You're talking about Joe Biden now, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Joe Biden is the Democrat Bob Dole. That's so true. It's a complete mirror reflection, except one guy happened to get the timing right once, right? Yes. He doesn't look like a guy who spends a lot of time thinking about regret overall. It could be a regret. Could be. Not introspective enough. Fair enough. All right, category 11, good dreams, bad dreams. This is not about personal perception, but rather does this person have a haunted look in the eye, something that suggests inner turmoil, inner demons, or unresolved trauma? I don't know. This is debatable to me. What do you see? I see some of it, but I see also that maybe he just doesn't even address it. You know, yeah. and this goes back to the point that I made a moment ago is that maybe there just wasn't a lot of introspection to Bob Dole. I think that's probably and true. You and I talk like, as a politician, you kind of are conditioned to a certain level of distance. Yeah. And so I think that's what he had. And it's a weird thing to observe from a point of desirability because the whole point of the show is like you don't examine yourself, you don't examine your life, and then you're gonna miss something. You're not gonna be as fulfilled as your potential would allow. Yeah. On the other hand, you have the Zen master type of quote is that what you have is today and you have in the present and forget the past and forget the future and just, you know, deal with what's in front of you. Mm. It's a very difficult balance to strike. And I don't think Bob Dole is doing it for a Zen reason. I think there perhaps could just be intellectual limitation. Yeah. But or, or um, just how he was raised. I mean the wiring, you know. Yeah, but I don't think there's a lot of introspection in dwelling. So if I'm going to just go back to what the category says, is did the man rest easily? And I think he did. Yeah. Debatable one. 
Where do you sit on it? Good I don't dreams, know, man. I mean, there's. I, I think I actually am going to go bad dreams. I actually think ultimately that there's some time dedicated in the memoir to life as a son of the prairie and the dust bowl and so forth. I think that was probably hard living. And I do think that the trauma of being in war and being wounded in war is very real. And I think if this category is about like when all of your defenses are down in the middle of the night, you know, do the demons come and find you? I think they do. I think they're there. I think they're understandable demons, but I think that like there are some real, true, genuine horrors in this guy's life that maybe I don't totally see it in the eye, but I don't not see it. And if I have to flip a coin on it, I'm going there. there. So I'm going bad dreams. Okay. All right. Category 12. Cocktail, coffee, or cannabis? This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? It may be a question of what drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or it may be that we think a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them we are most curious about. Going coffee, Bob Dole, you know, has a reputation, at least at the peak of his powers, for being a real work-across-the-aisle compromise kind of guy. I am of the opinion that the core problem with American politics today is really rooted in largely gerrymandering. The way we can now draw lines so that elections are decided ahead of time, that we've got 535 seats in Congress, but really only 30 to 60 of them are up for grabs in any given election cycle, means that there is the game is not about finding political alliances across the other side. It's more about demonizing the other guy or the other gal, because that's how one benefits in politics today. I wonder if you could present that case to Bob Dole, let's say— 70s, maybe even in the 80s, and say, hey, if we don't do something about this gerrymandering thing, we are going to lead to an American democracy where there's going to be absolutely no desire or incentive for politicians to arrive at compromise and hear each other's ideas. And instead, what we're going to have is a media machine where we are just screaming at each other across the aisle and fighting at the margins for very, very narrow victories where nothing gets done. If you could lay all that out for him, I want to know what he thinks about that. So I'm curious here, and I think a good cup of coffee would be a fun one to have. Okay. Be curious to hear what he and other politicians of that generation who ostensibly valued that vision of American democracy, and maybe even still do, I don't know. I don't see it anymore. I wonder what he'd have to say. I like that. I'm curious about that as well. Initially, I thought cannabis, and it was these contradictions that I was curious about. This Trump backing seemed to be contradictory to the type of person that he uh, has always been. But then I, I thought about it, and I thought that this introspective Bob Dole, like, I think all that's buried way, 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 way too down. And I think we're going to need something much more stronger than cannabis, and I don't want to go there. Like, I'm not going to go to a shaman with Bob Dole yeah. in Peru. So where I landed then was cocktail. And I think I'm going right back to his impersonator, um, Norm MacDonald. Mm. It's kind of the backyard uh, cooler of beer type of thing. I think it'd be more in a bar with Bob Dole. But again, I go back to this wit in this funny thing. He loves wit as a tool. He thinks he's funny. I don't really think he's that funny. So I want to give him a chance. <laughs> I'm just swapping jokes and spending time with Bob Dole. Because oh. he prizes wit. He prizes laughter. Yeah. And we're just going to go do that. Well, and you have some dad humor to you. Your ability to point no, mine out Mine is razor sharp. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I mean, the Norm MacDonald episode, go against the norm. Like, that was terrible. Like, no, a lot of it. I really, but like, you, I'm You do that every fucking time we talk. Yeah. I'm deluded about my sense of humor. I yeah. think it's really, like, poignant. You're very dull-like that way. Ahmed Kapoor is deluded about Ahmed Kapoor's yes, <laughs> I sense am. of humor. So that's it. We're, we're just, we're having a barroom session, and it's just jokes. I mean, it's conversation that, that devolves into jokes, but that's all I want out of Bob Dole. Don't need any more access. Fair enough. All right, we've arrived. The Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Ahmed, do you want Bob Dole's life? I'll tell you what the things that I do like about it. You know, the... Well, lay out uh, the case for and against. The resilience, you know, the bounce back, the life of service, the not having too many detractors. Not a lot of people that hate Bob Dole, no matter where you are on either side of the aisle, so to speak, the things we uh, pointed to in humor and having the gall to rank funniest presidents. 
I think a lot of that speaks to kind of an every guy nature in Bob Dole, and I like the every guy. I think there's a lot about me that's misleading that I don't like the every guy, but the every guy is very attractive to me. Yeah. The things that that bother me about him, there are these contradictions. We talked about the losing. I don't like that much losing. Yeah. But I also don't want to discourage people from trying, knowing that they're going to lose. But it's a little too much losing for me. Yeah. And a lot of the things that I read in different obituaries and all, they say, like, Bob Dole, America's, like, lovable loser. And it's always, like, here is drab and dry it's Bob almost excuses for, lost. like, we like him, but remember, he lost. And it was just, there's too much mediocrity. You know, I think I would rather be, like, a really good non-nationally known mayor than having that many lines of unsuccesses as Bob Dole had. That's not entirely a pride thing. I think that's an emotion thing. I don't want to just go through that process of of trying and not being validated over and over again. Yeah. You know, you are a middle ground guy, but then you make these weird statements towards the end of your life. It doesn't all sit well with me in a package, and I don't dislike Bob Dole, and this is by no means a political assessment, but I don't think I want to, A, do the job, just doesn't look fun to me, and do not use this soundbite in my run for Senate. Yeah. Um, And I don't think I want to lose that much. The Constitution for heartbreak is not strong enough. So, no, I don't want your life, Bob Dole. Yeah. I mean, that last point really resonates. I don't like the job. But there's a different question that's sort of hovering over all this for me, which is your relationship to power. One thing that's indisputably impressive about this guy is his willpower and his resiliency, his willingness to like fight to get as much of his body back as he can and to make the most out of his life that he can, this son of the prairie, you know, even if he doesn't achieve the presidency, arrives at one of the more powerful positions in the most powerful country in the world. And he also does it at a time in history where it doesn't look that bad to me. I like the idea of being able to be in a position of power and exercise power if it can be done in a deliberative, respectful, hear ideas out and well-functioning democracy kind of way. If it becomes personal and if it becomes about personalities and it becomes about acrimonious and, and vicious the way it is these days, I hate politics today way more than I hated them or my understanding of them in the mid-90s. So it's a little bit of the question of what the Vanderbeek means. Do I get to have Bob Dole's life when he had it? And it is more attractive to me when he had it, what he arrived at, than it would be today. It's not necessarily that I would change any of my life decisions now so that they could more reflect Bob Dole Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Bob Dole's trajectory, but I actually really like this life in some really key ways. It's storied. It's got a very ambitious first line of the obituary that has poetry around it, right? You know, it is the stuff of novels. And I think even though politics is so full of bullshit, it's kind of fucking interesting behind the scenes, probably, especially if it does have a little bit of a intellectual, what's best for everybody, let's try and make the most of what we can. I also think he's, you know, when you said he's just one of us, I, I, you always have to be careful when assessing any kind of political figure because their whole goal is to be relatable. But I found myself relating to him more than I would have expected uh, in the research for this. And I kind of like that he used his re- relatability to try and help people out, particularly people with disabilities, but I think overall people who are disadvantaged. I don't know that I would have voted the way he did or signed up for the same party he did, but I'm more favorable to it than I would have thought. The family life gives me a lot of pause, I guess. Uh, I don't want a a new wife halfway through life, but I do like the idea of being halfway through life and saying, I'm going to do something new with myself. I don't want to do that with a marriage, but I do want to do that with myself, right? I think I talked myself into this, Ahmed. I think I want Bob Dole's life. Life is going to deal some super fucking shitty cards, and it absolutely did for this man. And yet, you know, there's a resilience and didn't give up and makes it all the way to fucking 98 years old. Hot damn. Good Mm -hmm. for him. Michael Osborne wants Bob Dole's life. All right. Michael Osborne, you are Bob Dole. 
And you are at the pearly gates. And saying in front of the pearly gates is St. Peter, who is the Unitarian proxy for all good things after life. You have the opportunity to make your pitch as to why your unique contribution should allow you for a better afterlife. St. Peter, Bob Dole here. Bob Dole had an incredible life. It was, in some ways, about as uh, American as you can get. Raised in the Midwest, in a loving family, and I served my country, and I was dealt incredible challenges as a result of being a soldier in the war. But I think the single most important contribution I had was that my story of recovering from the wounds of war was an inspiration to people. It lifted me into seats of power where I was able to lift those who were not able to help themselves out as much as possible. I could help people out, and I saw an ability to help people out and raise them up. I served as a source of inspiration, and I think I gave back everything that I learned as I was challenged myself. And I think that's the whole game as Bob Dole understands that. So for that, I hope you'll let Bob Dole in. Famous and Gravy listeners, before you leave, I have a request. If you are interested in participating in our opening quiz, where we reveal the dead celebrity, then send us an email. You can reach us at hello at famousandgravy.com. Send us an email. We can find time for a recording. It's usually pretty fun, and it only takes about five or ten minutes. We love hearing from you, so if you're interested, drop us a note. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you're enjoying our show and you don't feel like emailing us, then tell your friends about us. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Famous and Gravy. We also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends. See you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.